Well, good morning. Well, welcome. Again, to those here, to our visitors, to those online, I want to say hi to my wife in Uganda. Um, it's the same wife I have here. It's just she's in <laughs> Uganda. Our team, she's coming back Tuesday. I can't wait. I'm pumped. Uh, but we're running late, so I want to jump right into it here. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning. You know, it's been said that in the United States, we are a nation of laws, and we live under the rule of law. And while I believe that's true, it seems that lately there is a lack of enforcement of certain laws, whether that's traffic or or drug laws or immigration laws. And you probably heard that this week the decision was made by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Some, yeah, praise the Lord. Um, the district attorneys in certain states have already said they have no intention of enforcing any new abortion laws. Amazing. Uh, there's not a, a, an enforcement of many laws. And as disturbing as that might be, there's one set of laws that is universal and always enforced. And those are the physical laws of God's creation. And for instance, the law of gravity. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. If you jump off the side of a building, apart from a miracle, you're going to go down, not up. It's the law of gravity. Or you have Newton's three laws of motion. And the second law of motion, F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. And you've probably all seen the, the videos online. John, I'm not getting a PowerPoint there. You've probably seen these videos where two guys will each be holding an exercise ball and they'll charge at each other. And that when they collide, if they're going the same speed, well, it's always going to be the smaller guy that goes flying. That's, that's the second law of motion, and it's strictly enforced. That's not advancing for me, but I do see it there. We'll get it going. Oh, well, how about that? Two guys, exercise balls, collide. Lighter little guy always goes flying. There you go. This is why in a collision between a car and a bus, the car never turns out too good. See, because of the second law of motion, it's strictly enforced. But there's one physical law that I don't particularly care for, although it is enforced, and that's the second law of thermodynamics. We know it is the law of entropy. And it states this, that apart from any outside energy or effort, things tend to go from a higher level of, of order to a lower level of order. In other words, they decay. They erode. They become more disorganized. And we see that all around us. Just stop pulling the weeds in your flower bed and watch what happens in no time at all. Stop cleaning your house and you'll see entropy in action. Now, Deborah's coming home Tuesday. Nathan and I need to get to work. <laughs> but actually, we've been working the last 10 days to offset entropy. And I think the house is in better shape than when she left. But that... Not because of her. I've been fixing things. <laughs> Fix the washer, the faucet, the car. <laughs> Unless we put in effort and energy, things don't tend toward greater organization. They go the other way. In other words, things will not rise from the ruins on their own. 
they'll return to ruin. That's the law of entropy. And so I'd like to suggest, though, that entropy applies not only to physical things, but also to spiritual things. The human heart, apart from any outside energy or effort, is going to tend to break down and decay. If we stop reading our Bible and praying and gathering together for worship and fellowship, we are not going to continue to grow spiritually. In fact, we're not even going to stay at the same place. We're going to fall backwards. Our closeness to the Lord is going to erode. Our morality is going to erode. And so, you've probably felt that in your own life. Some people call it backsliding. Um, I'm going to refer to it as entropy. But keep this in mind as we jump into our text this morning. Because we're in Nehemiah and the title is going to be spiritual entropy. And it'll be Nehemiah 13. And there's really four areas where we're going to see this entropy happening. The first one is in leadership in verses 1 through 9. And then secondly, we'll see it in stewardship in verses 10 through 14. In worship, in verses 15 through 22. And finally, in relationship, in verses 22 through 31. Now, how I wish the events in the book of Nehemiah just ended at the end of chapter 12. But they don't. So let me just kind of recap what's been happening up to this point. Chapter 7, the work of rebuilding the wall has been finished in just 52 days. Chapter 8, they bring out the book of the law of God and they read it and they explain it. And there's this great revival that breaks out. Chapter 9, there's a great confession of sin. Chapter 10, there's a commitment to follow the word of God and and to obey God. and, And all the people sign this written agreement promising to do so. Chapter 11, the people volunteer to move into the city and repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Then chapter 12, the crescendo. There's this great worship service and dedication of the walls. Remember the two choirs marching down the walls, singing antiphonally and worshiping God? And how I wish it just stopped right there. And they lived godly ever after. But that's not where it stops. We go on to chapter 13. And what do we find in chapter 13? Spiritual entropy. So we'll start, we'll look at this first area, uh, beginning in verse 1, and it's in the area of leadership. And that's in verses 1 through 9. Let's read a little bit of it. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Starts out pretty good. They're reading the word. They're obeying it. But let's keep reading. Before this, Eliashib, the the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And he had provided him with the large room formerly used to store the the grain offerings, the incense, and the temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. But while all this was going on, 
I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put them back and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Now this section starts out by saying on that day the book of Moses was read. And, and, and it seems logical that this is a continuation of chapter 12, the day of dedication and celebration. But it actually isn't. Our English translation makes that a little bit confusing. Because as you read the chapter, Nehemiah wasn't even around here. He had headed back to Persia. So probably a better way to think of that would be on one particular day in which the book of Moses was read. And so this timing is important. So what's going on? Well, Nehemiah had made a commitment to return to the king of Persia at some point. And we saw this in chapter 2, verse 6. The king, with a wife sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? Nehemiah says, It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. In other words, Nehemiah made this commitment to return to Persia. And verse 6 says he returned in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. That's 433 B.C. That's 12 years after he arrived in Jerusalem. So he arrived. They rebuilt the walls. They began to restore worship and civility. And he was the governor. But after 12 years, he returned back to Persia. Now, it was while Nehemiah was away that things began to go south. Think about all the times in the Bible where there's the absence of a strong leader and spiritual entropy sets in. Think about in Exodus 32 when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord for 40 days. And when he returned, what were the people doing? Worshiping a golden calf. Just 40 days. Moses says to Aaron, what did you do? What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? And Aaron replied, do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. And Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. Just 40 days, God had done all these things for Israel. And Moses goes away for 40 days and they're worshiping a golden calf. They've turned their backs on the Lord. Judges 21-25, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In the New Testament, Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Spiritual entropy set in shortly after Paul departed. And this is why Hebrews 2-1 says this, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We can so easily drift away from the Lord. It's spiritual entropy. And it's particularly present in the absence of strong leadership. 
So Nehemiah, when he left Jerusalem to go back to Persia, things were in great shape. The physical and spiritual restoration of the nation was complete. And he was there for perhaps 10 to 12 years. We don't know exactly. But it's during this time that all of the de deterioration began. Now, I wish I still had a picture of this, but there's a business that restores old broken things and fixes them up. And out front of the business, they had a sign that said, Entropy, the tendency of everything to go to hell. Well, you know what? That's so true if you think about it. Both physical things and spiritual things. Left to themselves, they don't rise from the ruins. They return to the ruin. They decay. They break down. Now, it's not like Israel didn't have any leadership during this time. Verse 4 tells us that Eliashib was still the high priest. He's the highest religious leader in the land. But... It says in verse 4, he was closely associated with Tobiah. Does that name ring a bell? Remember Tobiah and his buddy Sanballat? Well, in chapter 2, verse 10, when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, it was Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official who, quote, were very much disturbed that somebody had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And in chapter 2, verse 19, they mocked and ridiculed Nehemiah and his work. And in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, when they heard the work was preceding, they were very angry, it says. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. And in chapter 6, they even plotted to lure Nehemiah away so they could kill him. So when Nehemiah returns back to Jerusalem for the second time, who does he find sleeping in the temple? But Tobiah, the enemy of Israel. Eliashib had taken the things of God out of the storeroom, the tithes, the offering, the instruments of worship, took them out and cleaned it out and basically turned it into an Airbnb for Tobiah. And there he is camping in the temple. Now this would be a little bit like maybe uh, Volodymyr Zelensky winning the war against Russia. And then he spends the next decade rebuilding the infrastructure of Ukraine and putting new government and military in place. And then everything's going great. So he comes back to the United States for a few years. And when he returns, there in the state house of Ukraine is Vladimir Putin. Can you imagine? That's what's happening here in this text. And poor Nehemiah, he's stunned at what he sees. It wasn't just that Tobiah was an enemy of Israel, but he was also an Ammonite, of which God said, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, period. The Ammonites and Moabites, they were detestable to God. First of all, because they called down curses on Israel. Remember God said to Abraham, anyone who curses you will be cursed. They called down, they tried to call down curses, but they also, their whole culture centered around the worship of a false god named Chemosh. Chemosh required that the people bring their children and burn them as a human sacrifice before him. It was a detestable false god. And the, the Moabites were known as the people of Chemosh. 
And so these people were not to be allowed into the assembly of Israel, meaning the Israelites weren't to intermarry with them and they weren't to allow them into the temple because they weren't part of God's covenant people. Now, does this mean that there was never any chance for an Ammonite or a Moabite to come to know the Lord? No. Can you think of a very well-known Moabite who came to know the Lord? Moabitess? Ruth. Ruth. See, but what it meant was they had to turn from their pagan culture and their false gods and they had to turn to the one true living God. Remember what Ruth said, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's a statement of conversion. She put her faith in the living God. And so she was brought into the assembly of Israel. In fact, she became an ancestor of King David and of Jesus Christ. You can't be more included than that. What's similar today? If somebody repents and turns from the rejection of God to accepting the Lord through faith in Christ, they're brought into the family of God. But Tobiah wasn't abandoning his false gods and converting to Judaism. He was infiltrating it. That's what he was doing. Tobiah was living in the temple all because an irresponsible leader Namely, Eliashib did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Think of the damage that is done when the church at large today um, does things under the leadership of irresponsible men. Whole denominations are installing pastors and leaders who should never be there in the first place. They're putting them into the house of God, so to speak. Now, my son Nathan, two weeks ago, he went to a rally in Geneva. It wasn't a car rally or a bike rally or an evangelism event. It was a gay pride rally called Family Pride at the Park. And it was sponsored by an organization called Fox Valley Pride and co-sponsored by, get this, four local churches. These are some of the pictures from the event posted on their website. Among the activities were tarot card readings as, and, and, quote, a special guest drag queen, Miss um, Mona Latte, and uh, to entertain, it says. And I'm just going to call out the churches that did this. You should hear their name. They're proud of having been involved. They should be ashamed. But Fox Valley Presbyterian Church, Geneva Lutheran Church, Geneva United Methodist Church, and the Unitarian Universalist Society of Geneva, which technically is not a church. But three of these represent major denominations in the United States. Two of them boast female pastors. And they were proud to be co-sponsors of this event. This is what happens when irresponsible people allow unqualified leaders into the church. Now, I may not like it or, or agree with it, but Fox Valley Pride is free to do their thing. But when Christian churches get involved and sponsor it, that really disturbs me. Irresponsible leaders have allowed unqualified people into the church and into positions of leadership and influence. And now this is the result. You know, it's sad to me that although Christians are people who follow Christ, they act like he went in all different directions. 
Some go this way in their following of Christ and some go that way. So you're probably wondering, what was my son Nathan doing at a pride rally? <laughs> yeah, I know. In a word, research. Research. He went around and he interviewed people. And he began listening. What is your reason for doing this? How do you base that in scripture? And he began challenging their beliefs. It was almost like an outreach for him. And, and he learned a lot from it. But we have Tobiah. Should never have been. Well, he, he is, should never have been in the house of God. And there he was. And he had a great influence on the people of Israel. So what did Nehemiah do? Verse 8. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. He didn't tippy-toe around. He didn't say, well, I don't want to offend anybody. No, he threw his stuff out. He kicked them out. Does that remind you of anybody? Yeah, Jesus, huh? When Jesus saw the money changers in the temple courts, he overturned the tables and he made a whip of cords and he drove them out. Well, that's not very loving. It sure was. Jesus was love incarnate, the very embodiment of love. And if what he did doesn't seem like love to someone, then they have the wrong definition of love. It was pure love. What Jesus did. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called it the anger of love. Now today, many people equate tolerance with loving people. But here's the thing. Genuine love never tolerates sin. Period. Let me back that up scripturally. Jude 4. For certain people whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of, God, of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Now notice this is speaking about people in the church, not those in the world, people who are claiming to be Christians. And listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. This is what Jesus and Nehemiah did. They expelled the wicked men from within the assembly of God. So first of all, we see this attrition in leadership. Secondly, we see it in stewardship. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God being neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pedaiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services." 
So Nehemiah finds that the Levites who were commissioned to serve full time at the temple, they weren't being paid. See, they couldn't go out and just work their fields for a living. They were full time in service of the Lord at the temple. But while Nehemiah is gone, Eliashib, he laid them off. They had no choice but to go home and try to work there to support themselves. So let's look at the commitment that the people made just three chapters ago in chapter 10. Let me read you verse 32 of chapter 10, or you can turn there. We assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year to the service of the house of God. 37, moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. And then the end of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. That was their sworn commitment. Didn't last, did it? As soon as Nehemiah is gone, they renege on all that. They start declining spiritually and morally. Warren Wiersbe, he said this. That's the wrong slide. Next one. Warren Wiersbe said, when God's people start to decline spiritually, one of the first places it shows up is in their giving. Isn't that interesting? Why do you suppose our giving is so important to God? We talked about this more earlier. It's not because God needs our money. He doesn't. He owns everything. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need your money. It's important to God because it's so important to us. And it's a barometer of where our heart is. That's the real reason. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. Yeah. Well, Nehemiah sees what's happening, and he relieves Eliashib of his responsibilities. And he puts these other guys in, in charge. And he says it at the end of verse 13, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were qualified. They were godly men. So there was a, an erosion, an entropy in their stewardship. Next, there's this entropy in their worship. Verses 15 through 22. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all the other kinds of foods. And they were bringing all this into the, to Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to all the people of Judah." Let me flip back to chapter 10 again, verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. This is what they swore they would do. They signed their name to it with an oath and a curse. And here just a short time later, what are they doing? Buying and trading, selling on the Sabbath. God wanted Israel to have a day of rest. Six days they would work and one day they would rest. And then there was also a Sabbath year. Six years they plow their fields and one year they let it lay fallow. 
See, he wanted to show them that if they trust in him and follow him, he'd provide abundantly all they need for that time of rest. But they didn't follow it. It's part of the reason why God took him into captivity in Babylon. For 70, 70 years of seven, 490 years, they skipped the Sabbath year. God held him in captivity for 70 years. He said, now the land will enjoy its Sabbath rest. So it was a matter of trust and obedience, this whole Sabbath day thing. So verse 17, Nehemiah says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? How, are you, how you are stirring up more wrath against Israel. Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Nehemiah's beside himself, and he should be. It was righteous anger. See, there's, in our sinfulness, there's a tendency to think that we can get ahead by disobeying God, by cheating the Lord. We'll somehow get ahead. It has to be the motivation. Who wouldn't want a day of complete rest? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? A year? <laughs> yeah, I'd take that too. Give me a Sabbath year. But they thought, well, that's all fine. But if I just work, if I get a second job, if I just work during this time, I can make more money. And we can rationalize that. It'll be for, I'll give my tithe to the Lord. There'll be more tithe. My family will be better provided for. My kids can go to college. You know, there's a tendency to rationalize that. Now, we know the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ, and we're not under that requirement today, but there's still lessons we can learn from this. Do you ever feel the temptation to get ahead by doing things your way rather than God's way? You feel that temptation? I do. It can take a lot of different forms, like maybe cheating on a tax return, not upholding a business contract, maybe taking a second job that doesn't allow you to worship on Sunday. I'll get ahead though. I just gotta claw my way out of debt and then I'll return to doing it God's way. If you feel that temptation, don't do it. God's way is always, always best. Even if it costs you something on a human level, it's always best. So Nehemiah, he puts in place some more reforms in verse 19. It says, when the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. This is what he had done several chapters ago. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Now, this wasn't a good kind of laying on of hands. <laughs> he, he wasn't going to lay his hands on and pray for them and anoint them. No, he was talking about physical repercussions to what they were doing. He probably meant throwing them out physically out of the assembly of Israel. And this is not personal vengeance. We're not to take vengeance. That's not what Nehemiah was doing here. It was, it was a passion of righteousness backed by his civil authority as the governor. He said, I will enforce the laws of God in this city. Now, I want to pivot to a related topic for just a quick moment. We won't dwell on it. 
It's not a popular topic in churches today. In fact, most people don't practice this, but it's the matter of church discipline. Now, I give credit to a newcomer to our church who asked me at the Newcomers Connection, do you all practice church discipline? I was so happy to answer that. I said, yeah, we practice biblical church discipline. And because we do, most of the church never knows it. Because most things don't rise to the level of telling it to the church. They're dealt with earlier. Now, here is a, I took this slide from a, um, a message on uh, Matthew 18. It goes back almost, I don't know, eight or nine years. If you want to look at this more, the process of biblical church discipline and how we approach it, you'll find a message out there called church discipline. And it's, on, it's from Matthew 18. I think it's verses 15 through 20. Um, you'll find it on the website, and it just kind of walks through the stages of this process. But kind of what Nehemiah is doing in the Old Testament is parallel to church discipline in the New Testament. There's a warning, and there's an opportunity to repent and change. But if that doesn't happen, you do expel the wicked person. They're not to be in the assembly of the saints. And so this is what we see kind of what Nehemiah is doing. So back to the end of verse 21, it says, From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Then finally we come to this fourth area of entropy, and it's in regard to relationships. In verses 23 through 31, he says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, uh, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and, or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, this one, this marrying of foreign women was probably the most egregious sin. And it was because the consequences of doing so were the greatest. And you're going to see the greatest response from Nehemiah in this area. It underscores how significant this sin was. God warned them not to intermarry with the pagans. And back in chapter 10, verse 30, they said, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. They had just sworn they wouldn't do this, and here they are doing it. Marriage is such an intimate relationship that when you're married to someone who doesn't share your faith or share your values, it's extremely difficult to not be negatively influenced by that. We touched on this in chapter 10. Marriage to a woman who worships and serves false gods stands to bring down not only the whole family, the husband, the children, but the nation. This brought about the downfall of Israel because the families, the men, they turned their back on the one true God. And the children here who spoke the language of foreigners, they stood little chance of learning the law of God. Remember all the way back in Deuteronomy 8. Talk about the Lord when you rise up and when you lie down and write his commands on your walls and doorposts. How do you do that when they can't even read the word of God, when they don't speak the language of God? 
It'd be very difficult. So again, the severity of this threat is reflected in Nehemiah's response. Verse 25, I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. <laughs> yeah, I know, that's kind of surprising to me too. I can just see, <laughs> you know, he can, uh, Nathan, go back to the park. <laughs> Do some church discipline. No, um, he says, I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourself. It seems pretty strong to call down curses on them. But again, when they made this commitment, they signed it with an oath and with a curse. They, they said, curse us if we don't obey everything in here. So Nehemiah, he's just saying, you said it yourself, and now you haven't kept it. Lord, remember them. Call, he calls down curses upon them. He's, he's recalling their own words. And then he just underscores the danger of what they, were, what they had done. Now, I heard about a small church in the south that gathered on a Sunday for worship. It was a beautiful day. And they're all gathered there and they're listening to the organ music. And there before them appears Satan himself. Well, there's this screaming of the people and they're terrified. And they start climbing over each other as they make their way out of the exits. All except one guy. An older gentleman sat in one of the front pews as if he was oblivious to what was happening. And Satan looked at him and he goes up to him and he says, Do you not know who I am? And the man says, Yep, I do. And he says, are you not afraid of me? He goes, nope, I ain't. And he says, well, how is it that you know who I am and you aren't afraid of me? The man says, been married to your sister for 48 years. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not hammering wives here. It's context. These people of Israel were closer to this little story than they realized. They had married women who are not followers of God. And this is a serious, serious matter. They become quite cozy with the enemy, you, you could say. And in verse 26, it says, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Solomon, we talked about this. He was the wisest man who ever lived. God gave him this incredible wisdom. Nations came from all over to hear his wisdom. And for all of his wisdom... He was led into sin by foreign women. I'll read you just a couple quick verses. First Kings 11, 1 and 2 and verse 4. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites and Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. As Solomon grew old, his wife turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon, the man who built the temple, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. 
He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Amazing. What would be a definition of foreign women today for a Christian man? What would that look like? An unbeliever. An unbeliever. Paul makes this really clear in 2 Corinthians 6. He said, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Yeah, but she's intelligent. And she's cute. And she has a good job. And she has a nice personality. And she is made in the image of God. But Paul does not mince words in this text. He makes a comparison of such women to wickedness, darkness, belial, which means worthlessness, and idolatry. And then he quotes a command of God from the Old Testament. He says, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. God takes this seriously. Do we take this seriously as a culture, as a church? Do we take this seriously? If you're a believer, then you are a temple of the living God. And to marry an unbeliever is kind of like hanging out with the devil's sister, in a way. And so this is a serious offense. It brought down the nation of Israel. Verse 27. Now, again, I'm, I don't want to say, if you are married to an unbeliever, Scripture says, makes it real clear, you're, if that person is living to willing to live with you, you're not to divorce him or her. This isn't just unbelieving wives. It goes for husbands too. You're not to divorce if they're willing to live with you. But if you're single and you're dating and you're looking for a spouse, God is very clear and he uses very strong language on this. So verse 27, must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiado, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to who? Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Eliashib, the high priest, his own grandson, had married the daughter of Sanballat, the enemy of Israel. And, and Eliashib didn't seem to have any problem with this. It was these types of ungodly alliances that brought about the downfall in the first place. And Eliasha, by the way, is one of the priests who made the commitment in uh, chapter 10, signed it. We will not give our daughters or sons. We won't take them in marriage. But here, his grandson is now married to a daughter of Sanbalat. Now, an interesting note this chapter started with a little bit of a revival again. They're reading the word and go, whoa, we shouldn't be marrying these people. Well, it is very likely that the book of Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian, the book of Malachi was written during this time of Nehemiah. Because if you read Malachi chapter 2 verses 1 through 8, it's like a perfect description of what was going on with this sin in the priesthood. And so take a look at that tonight. 
And if that is the case, then these words of Nehemiah 13 are the very last words of the Old Testament before they'd enter this period of 400 years, the intertestamental period where there was no word from God, where they're waiting for the Messiah. So, verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Now, three times, Nehemiah says, remember me, O Lord my God. And here he says, remember them. Oh, Lord, my God, remember them. Don't forget these evil things that they have done. He says, so verse 30. So I purified the priests and the Levites and everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor. Oh, my God. There's a beautiful promise from God in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And it goes right along with what Nehemiah is saying here. It's Hebrews 6 verse 10. And it says this. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. And the love you have shown him. As you have helped his people. And continue to help them. The Lord will not forget you Christian. He won't forget the struggles as you're serving him, you're sacrificing your time and your treasures to serve the Lord. He won't forget. Jesus said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. God remembers. He remembers our work. He sees well, I want to I just quickly wrap, wrap up this chapter. But next week, what we're going to do, we're going to do, I've never done this. We're going to do a wrap up of the whole book. We're going to go back from, to the beginning. We're just going to walk through that at a little higher level and take away some points from it. But wrapping this up, the law of entropy says that apart from any outside energy or influence, things deteriorate. They go downhill. That's true physically and I believe also spiritually. And we see in the book of Nehemiah that the law, now by law, I mean the, the covenants and the promises and the vows and the oaths, all of those were powerless to refrain sin. We see that again and again, they fall into this pattern of sin. Only the grace of God flowing into our lives can give us the power to overcome sin. He's that outside energy that's needed to undo the spiritual entropy in our lives. He's the one we have to stay tapped into. There's a beautiful verse that states this clearly. It's Romans chapter 8. And it's verses 3 and 4. And it says, For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Isn't that beautiful? You can't do it on your own. You can go home and you can write out a commitment to God in an oath and you can sign it with an oath and a curse and say, God, I'm going to do this. And if you go out on your own and try to do that, you're going to fail miserably. But that 
doesn't mean that you don't do anything. You don't just let go and let God. I just hate that saying, let go and let God. You know, I like to say, get God and get going. Get to work. See, we have to tap into the spiritual resources that are available to us through Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now, I say this so many times and I'm afraid it just goes unheard, maybe. But living by the Spirit, how do we live by the Spirit? We live by the Spirit when we read and study the Word of God, when we pray, when we worship together, when we fellowship together, when we serve the Lord. We're living by the Spirit. And these are the avenues through which we tap into that outside resource that offsets the natural tendency of deterioration in a heart. Even as in, with a new heart. It will decline, will go downhill if we don't draw close to the Lord and draw upon the power that he gives us by his Spirit. The power to live by the Spirit and overcome sin to the glory of God. So, God gives to us the power that we didn't have ourselves. The law was powerless, but Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law that we might have his power, that we might live a righteous, holy life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there's so many great examples in Nehemiah, examples of prayer and commitment and leadership and hard work. And yet we also see such failure in the people over and over. We see spiritual neglect and, and we see decay. And even we ourselves, we seem prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Spiritual entropy. God, I pray that through this word of yours and by your spirit that you'd impress upon our hearts just how detestable sin is to a holy God. And I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon us your desire for righteousness in our lives. God, remind us that we can't do it on our own. And we can't do it our own way. We need you. We need to constantly draw close to you for the power to overcome this sin tendency that we have. We need to walk in your spirit, God, hour by hour, moment by moment. Thank you that Jesus made this possible for us. And we love you, Lord. And we give our hearts and our lives to you. Take and seal them for your courts above, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Go ahead.